This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Worship with West Concord. Good to see you today. Hope you're doing well. We are going to start a brand new series today entitled Inside Out, Doing Discipleship as God Intended. We're going to talk about discipleship. And for the next few weeks, we're going to examine it because at West Concord Baptist Church, just like any church, there's always room for improvement. And what we want to do is make sure that we are right along with God's Word, doing God's work God's way. And as we do discipleship, as we try to minister to one another and encourage growth in one another, we want to make sure that we do that God's way. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about different facets of small groups and one-on-one discipleship. We're going to look at scripture and see how the Lord Jesus Christ did it, even how they did it back in the Old Testament. And so we're looking forward to this. Now, as we talk about discipleship, we need to understand that in order for you and I to be someone who disciples someone else, we have got to be disciples as well. We have got to be spiritually growing. So as we begin this series this morning, we're going to talk about spiritual growth because we need to be we need to make sure rather that we are right where we're where we need to be. So we need to make sure that we are right where we need to be. And so today we're going to talk about growing God's way, spiritual growth, growing God's way. Now, how do you find spiritual growth. How do you define that? Well, spiritual growth is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins the process of making us more like Him, conforming us to His image. And so it's necessary that once we get saved, the Spirit of God comes to indwell in us, And the idea is, yes, to give us comfort and to give us illumination, but also to lead us and guide us along as as we seek to conform to the image of Christ. And yes, that's a process, and it takes time. As a matter of fact, this side of heaven, we will never cease seeking that process. We will never stop the spiritual growth process. As a matter of fact, I liken it sort of, to someone who has an amazing talent. You know, when my daughter was in college taking violin, one of the things that they required of her in her violin performance degree that she was seeking at the time was that she rehearsed or practiced at least six hours a day. Six hours a day on top of all the other classes that she had to take. She had to play and rehearse six hours a day on top of all the other assignments for the other classes that she had. Well, this is nothing new. There's a gentleman who lived, he, he lived between the 1800s and 1900s. He died in 1973 at 98 years old. His name was Pablo Casals. Pablo Casals was an amazing cellist. He was a gifted cellist, a world-renowned cellist. And even at 95, Casals practiced six hours a day. You would think someone who had accomplished everything he accomplished and and had become world-renowned would would not need to practice as much. And so an interviewer, when, when talking with him, asked him this question. He said, Mr. Casals, you are 95 years old and the greatest cellist that ever lived. 
why do you still practice six hours a day? And this was what Mr. Casales answered. He said this, Mr. Casales rather, he said, because I think I'm making progress. He practiced six hours a day at 95. After achieving worldwide fame and notoriety, he still practiced because he wanted to make progress. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? Maybe that's why he was a, a well, world-renowned cellist. Maybe that's why he had worldwide fame. Maybe that's why he was considered one of the best cellists that ever lived. Because he applied due diligence to his gift. You know, we as believers, we've been given the gift of salvation. And if that can be done for a talent of playing the violin or the cello, shouldn't we apply that kind of, 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 of work into growing spiritually? We, don't we need to not only apply quality, but quantity in our spiritual growth as we seek God's face, as we, as we learn His Word, as we draw close to Him and He draw, draws close to us? Should we not be growing in that fashion? I mean, it's one thing to do that for a, an instrument, for a talent. It's another thing to do it for Almighty God. And so, yes, spiritual growth is a necessity. And it requires just as much, if not more, diligence than perhaps playing an instrument or sport or another kind of hobby, or even if you make a living at it, we are living in and with the gift of salvation. So we're going to talk about growing God's way. We're going to look at spiritual growth today. And we're going to do that from the book of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount and the first section entitled the Beatitudes. We call them the Beatitudes because, they, that, because Jesus provides information that should shape our attitude, that should shape us as we come for blessing from Him. And so as we seek blessing, thus the Latin, anglicized Latin term, Beatitudes, we are seeking the blessings of God. And if we want the blessings of God, if we want to be impactful, if we want to be good disciplers, then we need to be discipled and we need to seek God's blessings. So let's go ahead and go to where, uh, prayer and then seek His face. Father, we thank You, Lord, for today. We thank You for the time online. Thank You for those who have joined us. Father, we thank you for the talent of people who play instruments and who play sports and do things to entertain us. Others, Lord, who cook and other people who practice medicine. And Father, all of these different lifelong careers and vocations, Lord, they require training. And after training, they require that practice be kept up. Even after someone gets proficient at what they're doing, Lord, hours and hours need to still go in so that they might maintain that proficiency and grow even greater. Father, help us to see our Christian life that way. Help us to look at our walk with you that way. Help us to seek to be more uh, conformed to Jesus as we move through our life. And Father, may we be like Pablo Casals. May we never, ever let up. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now, this is the section of the Gospels called the Sermon on the Mount. And it says this in chapter 5, verse 1, And Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, mainly because he went up to the mountain, and he sat down. 
It's interesting when Jesus taught, he actually sat down and everyone else stood up. You know that, hey, let's try that at church. I doubt if it would fly. But Jesus is going to share some information with us as he, as he seeks to draw us to himself and his, his disciples. And he's, he's going to share how we are blessed, how we are blessed, the Beatitudes. And of course, this is an anglicized version of the Latin word referring to the place of blessing. And so as we get into it, I want you to notice three things about this passage. Now, oftentimes we just read them as a list and, uh, and that's fine. You can do that. But more often than not, in God's word, there's always a formula or a pattern or a train of logic. As a matter of fact, any written literature worth its salt has a train of logic or a goal it's trying to get to. And of course, the Bible is the greatest written literature that has ever come and ever will come. And so we're going to actually see a formula, and one does exist in this passage, in these Beatitudes. And uh, as a matter of fact, I took the title for my sermon series, Inside Out, from this very passage. Now you say, Pastor, I don't remember that phrase being in there. It's not. But we see Jesus speaking of spiritual growth to these people, and, he do, and he's showing them how spiritual growth works from the inside out. And I think you'll find it very interesting because, again, if we are going to be disciples and if we're going to be effective disciples, then we had better be disciples as well. We had better be growing spiritually. So we're going to start in this series with you and I. We're going to start with us. More often than not, when we think of discipleship, we think of all these people that we want to go out and work with and spend time with and disciple. And that's great. We're going to do that. But it begins with us. We need to make sure that we are growing the way we should. And so in order to grow from the inside out, we need to see what the anatomy of growth looks like. And we find that in this passage. And Jesus, as he gives the Beatitudes, he's going to demonstrate that growth begins when we recognize our need for God. Growth begins, and it will not begin until and when we recognize the need for God. Look what it says here as we pick it up in verse 3. And you'll notice the key word running through all of this passage is the word blessed. By the way, it literally means in the Greek, oh, the many happinesses. Same thing in the Hebrew. Oh, the many happinesses. Markarios in the Greek here. And uh, Jesus is talking about that, that sort of place where we find satisfaction, comfort, and purpose. But beginning in verse 3, and these are going to be familiar to you, but listen. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as we look at these, growth begins when we recognize the need for God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. First, we must admit our spiritual poverty. If we're going to grow, we need to see our need for God. And the first way we do that is to admit that spiritually we bring nothing to the table. As lost sinners, as broken, fallen people, we bring nothing salvationally to the table. We are spiritually impoverished. We are natural. We are earthy. 
Our mind and focus is on ourselves. We are not spiritual. We are not heavenly yet, nor are we even thinking of God. We come spiritually poor and we must admit our spiritual poverty. It's not until we do that that we will receive citizenship in the kingdom of God. Not only that, but also we must, we must agonize over our sinfulness. The reason why we have spiritual poverty is because we're sinners. We're born in sin. By virtue of the fall of Adam and Eve, the human race was plunged into sin. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn for what? Mourn for our sinfulness. Grieve over our sinfulness. We cannot in and of ourselves please God. And our sin separates us from God. No sin is going to enter into heaven. The Bible says that in Revelation chapter 20, 21, verse 27. God's Spirit cannot abide sinfulness. Sinfulness grieves God, therefore it must grieve us. It is not until we come to that place where we begin to agonize and grieve over our sin. It's not until then that we'll find comfort, that we'll find salvation. In order to be saved, we must recognize that we bring nothing of ourselves to the table for salvation, and we must grieve and agonize over our sin. And then finally, in this one section, first we must admit our spiritual poverty, we must agonize over our sinfulness, and we must accept our inadequacy. We must accept our inadequacy. Because after all, <laughs> if we're spiritually poor and we are sinful and broken and mourning over that, seeking comfort from God, then naturally saying, naturally speaking, we're inadequate. We're inadequate. We, we don't have enough to come and bring to the table. He says in verse 5, blessed are the meek. That word meek literally means weak. It means worn out. It means powerless. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We come to God just basically powerless, inadequate. The only adequacy that we could ever hope to enjoy or obtain is that which comes from Jesus. Jesus Christ is our adequacy. He is our payment, our satisfactory payment for heaven. And so growth begins when we recognize our need for God. So many people do not get saved, do not become believers or Christians or Christ followers or whatever label that you like, so many people don't come to that place where they accept Jesus as their Savior because they don't see themselves as spiritually poor. They don't agonize over their sin and they refuse to accept their own inadequacy. They think they can, they think they can take care of it through religion and keeping legal codes and law codes and they think they're basically good. In the reality, growth won't occur until we realize our own poverty, till we agonize over our sin and understand just how inadequate we are. Fact of the matter is, folks, there's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. There is nothing you and I can do to give God or do for God that will help us to deserve salvation. The only thing anyone, including me, deserves is hell. None of us have ever deserved salvation, nor will we ever. We are spiritually poor, we are sinful, and because of that, we are inadequate. But, we'll, but when we realize these things, that's when growth begins. That's when growth begins. Let's look at the second aspect as we look at the next three Beatitudes. Secondly, growth continues 
when we receive the grace of God. Growth begins when we realize our own inadequacy. Growth continues when we receive the grace of God. I want you to notice the next three Beatitudes in verse 6 beginning there. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fed. We receive the grace of God. What is grace? Well, very simply, we've defined it before. Grace simply is unmerited favor, undeserved love. It's God giving you something and me something that we don't deserve and never will deserve. It is undeserved, unmerited favor and love. And growth begins or continues rather when we receive this by faith. In other words, we realize that his righteousness is what's needed. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, because listen, the fact of the matter is we have none in and of ourselves. As a matter of fact, there is none in the world. There, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. You say, but pastor, I, I'm not saved, but I can do good things. And I know the atheist down the street, he's a nice guy. She's a nice lady. They're always doing nice things. Listen, people can do good things. People can be good and they can do good things. But we're talking about ultimate righteousness here. As good as we are, and as many good things as we try to do, none of that is good enough to satisfy God. Only perfect righteousness can do that. And the only place that we can find that is from God. Yes, we're capable of doing good and being good. See, the problem is we get satisfied with that. We get satisfied. Well, I'm a decent guy. I'm a fine lady. I, I do good things. I'm a nice person. And you just toddle on and go about your life not caring what God wants, thinks, or, or desires. And therefore, we're not seeking out His righteousness. And yes, atheists are capable of being moral people. Interestingly enough, though, they have to borrow that morality from the God that they do not believe in in order to live by it. People talk about absolute morality, being good. How do we know what good is and what good isn't? Apart from the absolute truth and morality of Almighty God. And so he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. His righteousness satisfies us. You see, it's the righteousness of God that is required for salvation. I don't have it. You don't have it. The world doesn't carry it, and it cannot be found in anybody else but Jesus. But when we go to him in faith, trusting and relying upon him. You know, it's more than just believing in Jesus. It's literally believing on Jesus, trusting him, casting the full dependence of your eternity upon him by faith. And then God gives us his righteousness. It's almost like the eternal trade. We trust him and give him our faith and he gives us the free gift of salvation. He justifies us and gives us the righteousness of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 21. And his righteousness satisfies us. We become satisfied. We know that growth is beginning to happen and is continuing when we're satisfied by his righteousness. Righteousness, not only his righteousness, but his mercy relieves us. Look what it says in the next beatitude in verse, uh, in verse uh, 9. It says, bless, excuse me, I jumped ahead. Verse uh, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, where grace is getting something you don't deserve, 
Mercy is sort of on the other side. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. You know, when I was growing up, I deserved a lot of spankings. I deserved a lot of punishments. But sometimes my dad would be kind and he would be, he would be gracious and he would show me mercy. He would not give me the spanking I deserved. Fact of the matter is, you and I deserve nothing but hell. You know, we talk about entitlements in our world, financial entitlements, cultural entitlements, respect entitlements. Here's the truth. No one is entitled to anything. No one deserves anything. The only thing that we deserve is eternal punishment separated from God. But through Jesus Christ, we don't get what we deserve, and that is mercy. And so rather than sitting around wondering, will I go to heaven? Will I go to hell? I know I deserve hell. And most people in the back of their minds know that they are not as good as they should be. And they never will be good enough. But once we realize that God does not hold us accountable through Jesus Christ, then we suddenly receive that mercy. And oh my goodness, how relieved we are. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. They shall obtain mercy. And then finally, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So his righteousness satisfies us. His mercy relieves us and his purity illuminates us. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we receive his righteousness. He shows us mercy. So then we are able to be merciful. Not only that, but a spirit comes in to, in to indwell in us. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, God's spirit comes to live within us. And he, one of the things, one of the many ministries he does in our lives is he illuminates us. As a matter of fact, as we draw closer to the Lord, we get a better understanding of who God is. We begin to see him more clearly, the purer our heart is, the more our heart is under the control of the Spirit of God, guided by the Spirit of God, and yes, driven by the Spirit of God. The more we fill our heart with the Word of God, the more we angle our hearts to the mission of God. In other words, the more we get God as the seat and center of our hearts, and the less we are, the purer our hearts become, and we're able to see Him better. That's why Scripture says, that only the spiritual can understand the spiritual nature of the Word of God. People who don't know Christ or Christians who aren't walking as closely with Him as they should, Bible verses and Bible passages and Bible truths and doctrines can tend to be somewhat daunting or confusing or, or complex because I just don't get it, I can't see it. But the closer we draw to God, the more we drink in His Word and the more we allow His Spirit to lead us and direct us, the greater we'll see him and the more we'll understand his word and his mission. So his purity that we receive at salvation, it illuminates us. It lights up our path. So you see how growth continues when we receive the grace of God. Once we surrender and trust Christ as our Savior and the grace of God becomes operational in our lives, his righteousness will begin to satisfy us because ours can't, ours never will. We don't have enough righteousness, and our righteousness is broken, stained, and, and messed up from our sin. His mercy will relieve us. We don't have to sit here and worry about uh, what's going to happen to me. We've been granted mercy. So therefore, by the way, that enables us to be merciful. And as we grow closer to Him, His purity 
illuminates us. And, and the more we draw close to him, the greater he becomes visible to us and we see him. Not only that, but we see his hand and his work in the world. So growth continues when we receive the grace of God. And growth, you know, you think the next point would be, and growth ends when this, this, and that. Listen, our growth isn't going to end until we get into heaven to be with him and we receive our perfect bodies and we begin to live in this perfect eternal state. So rather than saying, as far as our lives here are concerned, growth ending, growth will simply intensify as we go down this road, as we continue to grow in him. And growth intensifies when we radiate the truth of God. You know, we find growth beginning when we discover and recognize our need for God. Growth continues when we receive the grace of God, but growth intensifies as we draw closer and closer to him, we begin to radiate the truth of God. This is the outside path of this, by the way. The inside comes from those first two points, but this is where the outside things happen. This is where the discipleship starts to occur or when we begin to look to teach and, and lead others. It says growth intensifies when we radiate the truth of God. And notice this, the truth of God it identifies us. Look what he says in verse uh, nine as we finish up. He said, blessed, there's that word again, are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. In other words, what, 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 what is a peacemaker? Well, he, he or she would bring peace or promote peace. And it not only happens in a cultural way or in a church way when we calm arguments down, when we settle tempers down, but literally as we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a fallen, broken world, a world that is at enmity with God, we are literally seeking to bring peace between humanity and God. I mean, after all, that's what salvation does. Because before we're saved, the Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We have been separated from God. But when we receive Christ as our Savior, we now have peace with God. And now we are in His family. He becomes our Father and we become His child, His son, His daughter. And now as we continue to grow, we seek to take that message of peace. The Bible, even in book of Ephesians, calls it the gospel of peace. We take the gospel, the good news, that message of peace being possible with God out to a fallen, broken, estranged world. And we'll be identified with that. We will be identified with being peacemakers. Now, yes, there will be people that you come across who they don't want to hear that message. They're not interested in peace with God. They don't think they need the peace of God. That you know, takes us back to our first point. They don't recognize their need for God. So, yep, you're going to get blowback from that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But you will be identified whether someone does it for good or for ill. You will be a peacemaker for God. You will be a gospel bringer for God. And uh, even if somebody refers to, you that, refers to you that way derisively, you're still identified with that. You know, people might look at you and say, oh, you're one of those Christian Bible thumpers. Oh, you're one of those holy Joes or you're one of those Christian nuts who come out. Listen, either way, I'm still identified with Christ. Either way, I'm identified as someone who is trying to bring the message of rescue, salvation, and peace to a world that is in danger, fallen, and broken. 
So blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the sons of God. You will be identified by that. You will be identified as a peacemaker. It identifies us. Look at the next thing, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, remember I said there would be blowback. Well, here it is. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. Again, this is not just problems in general. This is, and we talked about this when we looked at first Peter, this is persecution because of Jesus. This is suffering and insult and derision because of your witness for Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Notice what he says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So not only does this growth as it intensify identifies us, listen, and here's the truth, it will also jeopardize us. You know, Jesus here is preaching to a rather large crowd, but his disciples were gathered around him and every one of those 12 men were in some way persecuted. Now, Judas, his own sin persecuted himself, his own rebellion against God. And he, and he killed himself because he had rejected Jesus. And it grieved him to the point where he could just not come to faith. And he took his own life. But the other 11 men, each one, were persecuted. And 10 of them died because of their faith. They tried to kill John but uh, they did not succeed. But John nonetheless was persecuted for his faith. He died in old age, but they, uh, they tried to take him out, but they couldn't. But nonetheless, when you stand up for truth, as you grow, yep, it's going to jeopardize you to a great extent. Now that's sometimes when a lot of Christians fall away because they don't want to fool with that. They don't want to identify with Jesus and his sufferings. They don't want to identify with the heroes and heroines of, a, of the Christian faith throughout history who have stood up to make possible what we're doing today. You know, I'm able to put this, ta uh, this tape, this video, this tape tells you how old I am. We're able to put this video out on uh, the internet because of what's gone on in the last 2000 years. Men and women who have been persecuted because they identified with the truth. They radiated the truth of God. It will jeopardize us. But you know what? While we may lose some of the earthly kingdom that we have here, material things, friends or whatnot, it tells us here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what we lose here is nothing compared to what we will gain one day. <laughs> it's, it, there is no comparison. We will gain the kingdom of God. So, so when we grow, that growth intensifies as we move along, as we're moving on the outside path. We've talked about the inside. We need God. We need God's grace. But now as we begin to walk in that grace, that growth moves outside as we do seek to lead people to Christ, as we do seek to disciple other people. We will radiate the truth of God. It will identify us how as peacemakers. It will, it will jeopardize us as we go out to take the message. But notice this, in the midst of that jeopardy, there will be gratification. It gratifies us. Look at verse 11. It says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Here it is again. You say, why did he repeat that? Well, there's a reason. And they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for what? For my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. You remember Peter saying that? Go back and read 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4 again. 
Peter talked about the joy that we should experience and the rejoicing that comes when we're persecuted for Christ. I believe Peter was sitting there listening to this initial sermon, and I believe that the decades later or the years later, he remembered these words, and God rose them and raised them back into his heart as he wrote his epistle, and he put this information back down again. It's only going back to this sermon. He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. So why? Well, look at this. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. The prophets who came before Jesus, the men who stood up and had to preach the messages to the nation of Israel, some good, some very difficult, some speaking of God's grace and love, some speaking of God's impending judgment. These prophets were mistreated, poorly treated. Uh, we know that many of them were killed for their message. For instance, uh, the prophet Isaiah, we understand from Jewish history that they took him and sawed him in half while he was still alive. Can you imagine? And so they struggled and suffered. And even Jesus here, uh, sometime after this message, a couple of years later, he is going to be persecuted. He is going to be beaten and nailed to a cross. So we're in good company. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, as well as the Savior. So this kind of growth, as it intensifies and as we radiate the truth, and as we interact with people and we will receive good, we will receive mainly bad, it gratifies us because we know that we are on track and one day we will receive reward and blessing in heaven. And so that's how growth works. It begins from the inside out. Growth begins when we realize in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we have a need for God. We have a need for Him. We realize and recognize that we are spiritually poor, spiritual poverty. We recognize and we agonize over our sinfulness. If we don't do that, we're in trouble. We also must accept our inadequacy. That's the beginning of that inside growth. We recognize our need for God. And once we do that, then are we only able then to receive the grace of God? And that's how growth continues. We actually receive salvific or saving grace from God. And His righteousness will satisfy what is lacking in us. His mercy will relieve the fear and the, and the, and the angst in us. So much so that we'll then want to share that mercy with others. And as we walk closer to Him and as we draw closer to Him, we will see Him better. And our hearts, the purer they get, the brighter God's face becomes and the more open His Word becomes. And that growth will not end till we get to heaven, but it intensifies when we radiate the truth of God. That's that outside growth, the inside growth. And as you, as you read this, you notice it goes in and then it begins to move out into the world. It identifies us as peacemakers. It jeopardizes us in persecution, but it'll gratify us one day in our reward when we walk before the Lord in heaven. I want to leave you with the passage this morning from the Apostle Paul. And it sort of encapsulates what we're talking about today and what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, and it's in Colossians chapter 3. The book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says this, talking about that internal growth and that external growth as well. He says that inside and out. 
He says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Growth starts on the inside. Let it grow in you. Get involved in it. Immerse yourself in it. Allow the word of God to fill your heart and mind. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. That word dwell literally means to make itself at home. What does it mean to make yourself at home? It means you, you go to someone's place and you act just like at your house. Hopefully not that bad, but in this way, we get comfortable. Are you comfortable with the Word of God? Do you know it to the point where you're comfortable in answering questions? Are you comfortable with seeking it out and looking for truth? Are you comfortable with the Word of God? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, fully, completely, in all wisdom, it starts on the inside. Then he goes on to say, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, music is a grand and great part of the church. We have a wonderful music team here. And uh, we have great music every Sunday morning. And that's an outward way of expressing inward growth. But not just in the walls of the church. We are to go out with a new song in our heart. As we go out and communicate, radiate the truth of God and his word. He says, he says to, to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here's where the discipleship comes in. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And now it continues. And whatever you do, again, outward act, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So here it is, inside out, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us, make itself at home in us in a rich and abundant and full way. Then we begin to teach one another. We begin to share with one another. And we begin to express our faith in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that new song that God has placed on our hearts. As we go out, we're able then to work for him. And he says, whatever you do, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your job, whether it's at school, in your family, no matter what it is, do it to the glory of God. Do it in the name of God, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk over the next few weeks about discipleship the way God intended it. But you cannot be an effective disciple unless you yourself are being discipled. And it starts now. It starts by you realizing that you need God. It starts by you and I also recognizing and receiving God's grace. Yes, grace initially for salvation, but we continue to receive God's grace and mercy as we go through our lives and as we make choices and have to seek forgiveness for bad choices we make from time to time. And then we need to just continue to radiate God's truth. We need to communicate His Word and it'll identify us. Yep, you will be identified as a believer, as a Christian, but that's not a bad thing. Even when people insult you for it, even when people persecute you for it, that's just a badge of honor as you seek to honor God. Because no matter how difficult it might get here, and whatever you lose for the name of Christ, Jesus said in that beatitude, you will receive the kingdom of Almighty God. I think that's a pretty good trade, don't you? And so we are going to grow God's way as we seek to do discipleship the way God intended. I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks for this series. 
I think you'll find it good and I think you'll find it fascinating. But most importantly, I hope that you will find someone that you will work with and bring along. And uh, my goodness, can you imagine if we all did that, how strong our churches would be and how great our witness would be. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word today. Lord, we thank you that in spite of our brokenness and sinfulness, you love us and we need you. And Father, thank you for your, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your righteousness, which we have none of our own. And Father, we thank you that after we've come to know Christ, we can begin to walk with you and, and learn your word and draw closer to you, see you more clearly, understand your word more clearly. Lord, to the point where we're able to give it out and tell other people the truth. Lord, help us to do that as we walk. Help us to be everything you need us to be. And like uh, Pablo Casals, Lord, let's put quality time in as well as quantity time in practicing our faith in Lord trusting in you and learning your word so that we might play beautiful music in your ears as we live and walk with you. Thank you in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.